morning. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 12, 1 through 5, and Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. First, the Genesis passage. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarah and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. Now Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay. For some reason, I knew I wasn't wired. (laughs) I want to share with you about the journey. And to say to you, it's not the event, it's the journey. And much of what I will say comes out of my own journey, out of my own experience these many, many years. One of the commonalities of the Christian, Jewish, and Muslim religion is the figure we meet in this 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. We meet him as one who has left behind his young and formative years 
and who is now in what Richard Rohr has called the years of falling upward. His name is Abraham. He's well-to-do. He has a huge number of sheep. He has a wonderful wife, large number of servants, and his life at this stage is more open to other things than just business as usual, and it's in that state of openness that he hears the voice of God calling him out of his contentedness into a deeper, riskier, and scarier sojourn, both of faith and of practice. I say sojourn, but perhaps the more familiar word would be the word journey. He's to leave behind his familiar surroundings, the certainties that have given him a calmness of spirit. God is inviting him to move of all things into new and uncharted waters. That's scary. And you can begin to understand what he must have faced in those times of travel and struggle, of questions, because God was inviting him to risk, to move away from the beaten path, the calm waters of contentment. Rabbi Hessel, and I've quoted this on many occasions, Rabbi Hessel came to Abraham one day, and he said, Abraham, saddle up, we're going for a ride. And Abraham said, Lord, where are we going? And the Lord said, Abraham, I'll tell you when we get there. You see, the very outset, we are shown a picture of life under God that is oftentimes so different than we would call the norm. We live in the Bible Belt amidst a more conservative evangelical mindset that tends to paint a different picture. Because it seems to me in this mindset, the primary emphasis seems to be not on the journey, but on the event. You hear it on radio and television, preaching. You hear it even in funeral services. The need, the responsibility, you must be born again. You must be saved. Now let me say to you that I in no way discount this. It is so important, it is so significant. I ought to know because I've had that wonderful and marvelous experience. But sometimes it's treated as if it were the gospel, if it was to end all things, if it somehow was the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. I'm currently reading a book by Farrell Sams entitled The Whisper of the River. 
main character in the story is a young boy, college student. His name is Peter Osborne. He's, uh, his nickname is that of Sambo. And he's uh, in his uh, dorm by himself, and he's on his knees praying, pouring out his, uh, his thanksgiving, uh, pouring out his plea for God to bless America and continue peace in this land. And then the author says he makes no reference at all to personal salvation because he already knew it was guaranteed. He knew it was guaranteed because in his earlier years he'd been saved. So for him it was all guaranteed for the rest of his life. I'm a part of a small group which meets on Wednesday evening and our study is on the life of John Wesley. And last Wednesday, we studied about the Wesleyan revival in the 18th century England, where literally tens of thousands of people across England came to know Christ Jesus. Now, Wesley knew nothing about altar calls. That was to come perhaps 100 years later. But there were people who were touched by the gospel. There were people who had an experience of Wesley had in which he called, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And Wesley knew they couldn't just stay there. Wesley knew that if they were to develop as Christians, then there had to be experiences, opportunities for them to grow and develop their faith, that it was not something that just happened on occasion, one occasion. It was a lifelong, growing, developing experience for their life. And so uh, Wesley made plans. He was creative in what he did so that these people, thousands and thousands of them, would develop and grow in their faith. They thought it was wonderful to have had an experience of being in Christ, but they knew that that had to grow and it had to develop across the years. It's, is it not strange that none of us would consider that saying our vows of marriage would guarantee a lifelong partnership? We know better. We know that it takes a lot of things that go into the development and growth of marriage that enables it to become the kind of marriage that it was intended to be. I'm seeking to, to, to emphasize faith as a journey. Not something that happened back then, but something that's happening now. Something that is invading our life now and moving us further and further into the deeper dimensions of faith. And so in these few moments remaining, I want to explore the significance as see, of seeing faith as a journey of growth and development. When I was a district superintendent on the coast, I was invited to speak at a series of noonday services at Trinity United Methodist Church. And in one of those services, 
I quoted a poem by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, the poem was The Chambered Nautilus. And the next day, a lady brought to me uh, the beautiful shell of a, uh, of, a, of a mollusk, which I assume is also a nautilus. It was a bigger than my hand, beautiful. But when I turned it over and looked under it, I saw something truly amazing. And I understood why she brought it to me and gave it to me. Underneath that shell, there was a series of chambers in which that mollusk had lived from the very tiniest chamber to grow in the larger and larger and larger chambers so that as that mollusk grew, mollusk grew it moved out of one chamber into a larger chamber. It moved out of that chamber into a larger chamber and a larger chamber. I understood why Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the poem that he did, because through an artist's eyes, he saw faith as enlarging and enlarging, the soul growing and developing. Charles Wesley wrote about it when he said, change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Let me say at the, at the end, outset here that this journey involves both risk and uncertainty. It does not run in a straight line. And I say that, I say that if we're really serious about growing and developing Again, hear the words of God to Moses, according to Rabbi Heschel. Where are we going? I'll tell you when we get there. And oftentimes, these words are the very words we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear them because so many grow accustomed to a religious faith that demands certainty. And when you live with certainty, you don't feel the need to risk. You don't have any reason to raise any serious questions about your faith. You don't allow doubts to surface because if you're certain, you don't have doubts. And if you begin to have them, you suppress them. How many wives here? How many wives driven with their husband on a trip somewhere and suddenly the wife speaks up and says, are you sure you're on the right road? Why don't you stop and ask somebody? And the husband says, I'm certain I'm on the right road. 30 minutes later, he recognizes that's not true. If he's certain, he doesn't ask any questions. If he's certain, he doesn't ask anybody about directions. If he's certain, he just plows on. And oftentimes, that's the order 
of our faith. You see, living with certainty, you settle. You settle on what's right and what's wrong. You settle on what to think and what not to think. In essence, you live in a black and white world. I'm not suggesting. I'm not suggesting that certainty is all bad. In my early life and even into my life as a young pastor, I needed a certain amount of certainty in my life. That was a part of growing up, the need for boundaries, the need for things to be black or white, right or wrong, up or down, good or bad. I needed a kind of certainty about what I believed, a kind of certainty about where I stood amidst the complex issues of this world. But when I began to more nearly understand that faith was a journey, faith was a growing, developing experience, I had to move beyond that kind of thinking and being. Abraham's journey meant far more than leaving a place. It meant far more than just a call. It demanded that he explore new territory, ask hard questions, live amidst the uncertainties that he faced. I cannot recall with exactness when I began to move from the stage of a faith that demanded certainty to the stage which engendered risk and that at times left me feeling uncomfortable. I've shared this story several times. You don't remember it because most of you remember what I said, period. I remember six weeks in the seminary. I was riding back home with some carpool buddies and some issue came up something I'd said and somebody differed with me. And they said, the professor said this. And I said, I don't care what the professor said. I know what I believe and no professor is going to change my mind. Certainty. Certainty. I suppose outside of my seminary studies, one of the most defining moments in my journey as I moved outside the box into the larger dimensions of faith, I picked up a copy of a book by the great English Methodist preacher named Leslie Weatherhead. And of all things, it bore the title, The Christian Agnostic the Christian agnostic. This great man of God who had weathered the horrific bombings in London during World War II and through his church had ministered to the dying, the broken, who possessed a faith that I could never emulate but which I wanted to explore. And so in doing, he began to open my eyes, eyes to the fact 
that it was not only important to own my doubts and to ask my questions, but it was also absolutely necessary if I were to move into the deeper dimensions of my faith. And so began my gradual transmission. And I can remember how uncomfortable it was to live with a certain amount of ambiguity, a certain amount of uncertainty, and especially when I had very few people I could share it with who would not, oh, at me when I talked about my doubts, when I asked my questions. But I had to unlearn a lot of things, and much of it had to do with the social aspects of the gospel where I had to let go of so much that I had been taught and grew up with and understand understood then as gospel. And I came to understand that it was not right for me. It did not fit into the picture that I knew in Jesus Christ. I've been on this journey for a long time. I, I remember our children we used to take a trip and one of the incessant questions from the back seat, Daddy, when are we going to get there? Well, I've been on this journey a while, and I'm not ever going to get there. I can tell you that. This faith is too big. This faith is too deep. This faith is too broad for me to ever get there. But it's my aspiration never to give up, never to lay the oars down, but to keep on keeping on. I think to a large degree, our church is in trouble. And I'm speaking of the larger church in America. There's a culture war going on in our nation, but this is true also in religion in our nature, nation. Culture wars, religious wars being fought over such issues as abortion, homosexuality, the battle over the Bible, creationism versus evolution, and the list could go on ad nauseum. And one of the things which fosters these kinds of cultural wars is a legalism that focuses on adherence to rules and to dogma, to regulation and codes of conduct. And this is done at the expense of grace, of mercy, of love, of compassion, of spiritual growth. Last year, Philip Yancey came out with his new book entitled Vanishing Grace with the subtitle, Whatever Happened to the Good News? He explored the question that is so present in this land of ours. What has contributed to the hostility directed towards Christians 
especially, he says, toward evangelicals. He quotes the comedian Kathy Ladman, whom he says expresses a common view. All religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. How did this faith, how did this faith taught and lived by G, out by Jesus come to have such bad press? And the only reason I can find that we have claimed Jesus as Savior, but we have dismissed Jesus as teacher. And the things he taught and the way he lived and the way he called us to live. If the church is to have any relevance as we move into the future, then we must recapture the significance of thoughtful conversations about those things that really matter. And the life and teachings of Jesus it must be at the center of those conversations. To be willing to ask questions, yes. To share our doubts, yes. But in the process, keep faith with the journey. We sang about freedom a little while ago. If you would be free, the sun makes you free. I mentioned Oliver Wendell Holmes and what he saw in that mollusk shell. And he wrote these words in that closing poem. Build thee more stately mansions, O my soul. As the swift seasons roll, leave thy low vaulted past and build each new temple nobler than the last. Until at last, until at last, thou art free. Build the more stately temples, moving deeper and deeper and deeper into this faith. And now the New Testament text. Brothers and sisters, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But herein lies my aspiration, forgetting those things which are behind and looking to those things which lie ahead. I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, it's the journey. It's the journey. Let us pray. Help us, O oh God, to know that a journey requires a lot of work and prayer and devotion in our lives. It's not laying down the oars, it's picking them up and moving with the Spirit of God into new directions 
as well as clinging to those central things that make life worth living. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.